0: nothing. I have shut myself away from all the rocks and wisdoms of ages, and from the so-called great teachers of all time, and perhaps because of that isolation I am given to bizarre hospitalities. I shut the front door upon Christ and Einstein, and at the back door hold out a welcoming hand to little frogs and periwinkles. Egypt, circa 1500 BC. Although he had been raised in the house of the Egyptian royal family, Moses was born a Hebrew. He dwelt, in a sense, between two worlds. He was chosen by the God of Israel to lead his people out of Egypt, where they had been oppressed, and into the land of Canaan. At God's command, Moses and his brother Aaron confronted the Pharaoh. God said, I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. As a demonstration, Aaron threw his rod on the ground, which transformed into a serpent. In response, Pharaoh called his sorcerers, who threw down their rods, which also became serpents, but they were swallowed up by the serpent of Aaron. Despite this show of the Lord's power, for it was the Lord who commanded this wizard battle in every detail, Pharaoh refused to let Moses' people go. His heart was hardened. The Lord hardened it. What follows is an escalating series of plagues, with Moses demanding Pharaoh let his people go, Pharaoh refusing, and Moses stretching out his rod at the Lord's command to bring another plague upon the land. Ten in total. First, the waters are turned to blood, then, the land is filled with frogs, then, lice or gnats. Then some vague swarm, usually translated as flies. Then a disease that kills livestock. Then Moses and Aaron are commanded to take soot from a furnace and toss it into the air. It turns into a fine dust that spreads through the land. And somehow, because of all this, all of the people and animals break out in boils. Then a thunderstorm of hail and fire... Then a plague of locusts, then darkness for three days. Finally comes the death of every firstborn Egyptian son. A common question about this story is why the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart against letting the Israelites go? If it wasn't Pharaoh's free will, did Egypt have to suffer these ten plagues? Why didn't the Lord soften Pharaoh's heart rather than hardening it? Were the plagues not a vulgar display of power? And if the plagues were the work of the Lord, why is it necessary for him to have Moses and Aaron invoke them in what appear to be magical rituals? All reasonable objections. I'm going to propose a solution. It's tentative subject to revision. It's not mine, and I don't fully believe it. First, the part about the magic. It's magic. Full stop, end of story. In ancient Egypt, religion was about magic even more than it was about worshiping gods. Magic was everything. The story of how magic comes to be considered as a separate thing from religion and as something suspect or disreputable, a kind of perverted form of religion. This is a long and complicated story and I'm not going to tell it here, but clearly the split had not yet happened when the book of Exodus, which tells this tale, was written. Now as far as the free will question goes, it's pretty clear from the text that there isn't any. The moral problem here comes from projecting a modern conception of mind which is absent to whomever wrote this text. Everyone, Moses, Aaron, Pharaoh, is obeying the will of the Lord. Well, maybe the Pharaoh's sorcerers are obeying Pharaoh, but that's just further downstream. Basically nobody's making their own decisions here. And this is a characteristic that Exodus shares with two other great works of ancient literature, the epics of Homer, but especially the Iliad. To quote the psychologist Julian Jaynes, There is in general no consciousness in the Iliad, and in general, therefore, no words for consciousness or mental acts. The words in the Iliad that in a later age come to mean mental things have different meanings, all of them more concrete. James goes on to give definitions of a bunch of Greek words used in the Iliad which originally had purely physical senses, but which later evolved into mental meanings. There can be no free will in the Iliad, since willing is a mental category. James argued in his 1976 book, the origins of consciousness in the breakdown of the bicameral mind, that not only was there no consciousness at all in the Iliad, but neither was there in the ancient Greece of the Homeric period. What takes the place of mental acts in Homer are the acts of gods. Quote, when Agamemnon, king of men, robs Achilles of his mistress, It is a god that grasps Achilles by his yellow hair and warns him not to strike Agamemnon. It is a god who then rises out of the gray sea and consoles him in his tears of wrath on the beach by his black ships. A god who whispers low to Helen to sweep her heart with homesick longing. A god who hides Paris in a mist in front of the attacking Menelaus. A god who tells Glaucus to take bronze for gold. A god who leads the armies. Into battle, who speaks to each soldier at the turning points, who debates and teaches Hector what he must do, who urges the soldiers on or defeats them by casting them in spells, or drawing mists over their visual fields. It is the gods who start quarrels among men that really cause the war and then plan its strategy. It is one god who makes Achilles' promise not to go into battle, another who urges him to go and another who then clothes him in a golden fire reaching up to heaven and screams through his throat across the bloodied trench of the Trojans, rousing in them ungovernable panic. In fact, the gods take the place of consciousness. End quote. But why would all mental acts be attributed to gods? Here's where James's infamous theory of consciousness comes in. He believes that ancient peoples, up until some time after the Bronze Age collapse around 1200 BC, existed in a state of what's called bicameralism, meaning that the two hemispheres of the brain operated mostly independently of each other. Interactions between them were perceived as one hemisphere, the right, speaking, giving commands, and the other, the left, listening and obeying them. This relation is what neuroscientist Ian McGilchrist later called the master and its emissary. Ancient man, in this view, was a functional schizophrenic, hallucinating gods. As far as the books of Moses, Janes writes, The first thing to realize is that the very motive behind their composition around Deuteronomy at this time was the nostalgic anguish for the lost bicamerality." Of a subjectively conscious people. This is what religion is. And it was done just as the voice of Yahweh in particular was not being heard with any great clarity or frequency. End quote. The authors of Exodus, on this view, were invoking a bygone age of miracles while telling the origin story of the kingdom of Israel. Now, each of the plagues deserves to be analyzed in detail, but you already know which one we're here for. Here's Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, Quote, And the Lord spake unto Moses, Go unto Pharaoh, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. And the river shall bring forth frogs abundantly, which shall go up and come into thine house, and into thy bedchamber, and upon thy bed, and into the house of thy servants, and upon thy people, and into thine ovens, and into thy kneading troughs. And the frogs shall come up both on thee, and upon thy people, and upon thy servants. End quote. The King James translation is one of the only versions that translates this as borders rather than country or territory. The Hebrew is gevulecha and gabul does indeed indicate a border or boundary. I get this from Googling, by the way, not from any great knowledge of Hebrew or the Bible. Of course you might say that the idea of a border is just implicit in the idea of a territory or country, and that all this really means to say is that the whole of Egypt will be filled with frogs. But I wonder if there isn't some deeper connection between the frog as a symbol and the idea of a border. Sir Lowe's Dictionary of Symbols tells us, The frog represents the transition from the element of earth to that of water, and vice versa. The frog is an amphibian, after all, inhabiting two worlds. The term is Greek for both kinds of life. That is, life on land and life in water. We may therefore expect to meet at least one or two when we cross a border between worlds. And indeed, that is what we do find. BC At the festival of Dionysus at Linia, the first prize in the annual dramatic competition goes to a comedy called The Frogs by Aristophanes. We don't have the full details of his career, but he had probably won a few times before. This was most likely his most successful play since it was allowed a repeat performance at a later festival. If you've never seen or read Aristophanes, you should check him out. He's the father of Western comedy, and it's actually kind of incredible that his plays still hold up, that they're both entertaining and accessible today, considering not only how badly comedy can age, but how much his plays address political issues of his own time. He came from the wealthy class, and he's considered a conservative, but what's so interesting is that his politics, or what we can discern of them from the plays, don't easily map onto our familiar political spectrum. Would a conservative, in today's terms, stage a raunchy sex comedy as an anti-war protest? Well, that's more or less what you get with Aristophanes. The Frogs is one of his last plays, and one of the most demanding in terms of what the audience is expected to already know. From its success, we can infer that his audience had the requisite education. It assumes knowledge of all the conventions of Greek theater. Its opening line alludes to this when a slave says, Shall I give them any of the usual jokes, master? You know, the ones that are always good for a laugh? It assumes everyone is familiar with the works of Aeschylus and Euripides. The latter had died recently, the year before, 406. But the former, the world's first great tragic poet, had been dead for about 50 years. It draws on Greek myth, but of course everyone would have known all about that. But there's also some references to more recent trends in religion and we'll get to those in a moment. At one point in The Frogs, a chorus proclaims what I think is Aristophanes' attitude of optimism about his audience. Quote, Never hold back any attack, for fear you may not be understood. You have an audience who can follow you. Don't be afraid of being too difficult. That once could have happened, but now we've changed all that. They're good and they're armed for action. Everyone's holding his little book so he can follow the subtle illusions. Athenian playgoers, best in the world, bright and sharp and ready for games, waiting for you to begin. Here's your sophisticated audience. Play it to win. End quote. Now, it could be that he's just buttering them up here. Maybe that's why the frogs got first prize and an encore. But I think he's probably just correct. Athenians had been educated by their theater for the better part of a century. The audience for the Frogs would have known all of its conventions, and like all sophisticated audiences, they expected to get both what they expect and what they do not expect. Tradition and novelty at the same time. So anyway, what is the Frogs about? Well, it's not about frogs. The protagonist is none other than the god Dionysus. That's fitting for a play that thematizes theater itself because Greek theater probably originates as hymns sung in honor of the god. There's a lot to say about the relationship between theater and Dionysus. One of the best books about Greek theater remains... Friedrich Nietzsche's The Birth of Tragedy Out of the Spirit of Music, from 1872. It was his first book, the culmination of his training as a philologist or scholar of classical languages. Here he lays out the basic dichotomy of the gods Apollo and Dionysus. At the risk of oversimplifying this, Apollo is unity, order, reason, law, optimism, and illusion while Dionysus is multiplicity, chaos, instinct, pessimism, and reality. Greek tragedy at its peak, represented for Nietzsche by the works of Aeschylus, attained a balance between Dionysian and Apollonian forces thus giving voice to the full expression of what humanity is, both its archaic instincts as well as its capacity for reason. Both worlds. The chorus was the element that retained the archaic Dionysian hymns, while the dialogue between the characters was the rational Apollonian element. Nietzsche speculated that the word tragedy meant goat song, from tragos, goat and idine to sing, and that the chorus was supposed to represent satyrs, which were half men half goats. Aristophanes is here actually quite close to tradition in spirit while offering a novel element. His plays feature non-human choruses from which most of the play from which most of the plays get their names: birds, clouds, wasps, frogs. Now for Nietzsche, later tragedies, in particular those of Euripides, unfortunately tip the scale in favor of Apollo. Too rational, too accessible, too quotidian, too popular. They might be entertaining, but they lack the vital connection with nature. Nietzsche's interpretation of Dionysus had a big influence on the counterculture of the 1960s. Jim Morrison, the lead singer of The Doors, was a huge fan, and he conceived of their live performances in terms of Dionysian ritual, as well as identifying with the god personally. And just in general, we can see phenomena like rock festivals and mass protests as Dionysian phenomena with their collective ecstasy and suffering, their disordering of everyday life and consciousness. A performance group from New York called, what else, the performance group, staged an experimental version of Euripides' Bacchae, called Dionysus in 69. This play tells the story of the battle between King Pentheus of Thebes and a man called Dionysus, who is claiming to be the son of Zeus, i.e. a god, and his cult. Spoiler alert, it doesn't end well for Pentheus. He is literally ripped to shreds by Dionysus' female worshippers, the Maenads, including his own mother. This final shocking scene was linked to a supposed actual Dionysian rite, called spargmos, in which animals or people were sacrificed by being dismembered while still living. This was followed by homophagia, the eating of raw flesh. Now we have artistic representations of this, but no really good evidence that it actually happened. Again, in the 1960s, there was an art movement that took up this Dionysian tradition in the most literal way. The Viennese actionists staged violent and shocking spectacles as a protest against the commodification of art, including, among other things, the rending of animal flesh and ritual use of blood and entrails. Despite the revolutionary political intent of much actionism, it's hard not to miss the religious resonances, especially in the work of Hermann Nietzsche, note the name's similarity to Nietzsche, and his so-called orgiastic mystery theater. For my money, though, the problem with the cluster of cultural phenomena signified by the 60s is precisely this tension between its Dionysian and Apollonian elements. Dropping acid and losing your ego is Dionysian, but its utopian political goals summed up with the word progress, a word that would have drawn only contemptuous laughter from Nietzsche, a pure Apollonian illusion. Psychedelic aesthetics often derive from fin de siècle styles and art movements under which cultural pessimism was dominant. You might say that the 1960s chose Dionysian means for Apollonian ends, and we now live in the contradictions they wrought. My favorite commentary on the 60s idea of the Dionysian comes from Camille Paglia's Sexual Personae, a book which extends Nietzsche's Apollo-Dionysus dichotomy. The Dionysian was trivialized by 60s polemicists who turned it into play and protest. Pot on the picket line, sex in the romper room, benign regression. But the great god Dionysus is the barbarism and brutality of Mother Nature. Dionysus liberates by destroying, He has not pleasure but pleasure pain, the tormenting bondage of our life in the body. For each gift he exacts a price. Dionysian orgy ended in mutilation and dismemberment. The Maenads' frenzy was bathed in blood. The Dionysian is no picnic. Now, this Dionysus is admittedly a little hard to see in Aristophanes. Let's step back a bit and remember, which is to say, put all our parts back together after they've been torn asunder by Dionysian ritual. and Remember that Aristophanes is comedy, not tragedy. His is, in a sense, a cartoon Dionysus. If tragedy originated as a satyr hymn to Dionysus, comedy, it is thought, goes back to what was called the phallic procession. This was also a celebration of Dionysus, which included not only songs and dances, but also insults and all kinds of verbal aggression. You might look at this as negative, but it's actually all part of a fertility ritual meant to produce something positive. Comedy follows the exact opposite pattern as tragedy. Things began in disarray, and end in wholeness and restoration. The Frogs is the story of Dionysus' journey to Hades, to bring back to Athens the recently departed Tragedian Euripides. Why he wants to do this exactly is unclear from within the play. He says only that he has a desire that he compares with the desire for a kind of food, And I've seen different translations of the Greek that say either beans or soup. And I guess we might just call it bean soup. And I will note as an aside that some Greek secret societies, particularly the Pythagorean order, had a very strong prohibition against eating beans. Anyway, Dionysus consults his half-brother Heracles on the best way to Hades. Says Heracles had been down there as one of his 12 labors to retrieve the three-headed hellhound Cerberus. Heracles laughs at him and tells him the best way is to kill himself. But in the end he tells him the way and Dionysus heads down there dressed in the famous Heraclean duds of lion skin and wooden club, bringing his slave Xanthius along with him. There's a lot of comedy involving identity swapping between the two, as the cowardly and effeminate Dionysus wants Xanthius to play Heracles whenever there's danger afoot, and to play Heracles himself whenever a reward is at stake. This revolving door of costumes and identities is probably a commentary on theater itself, which is continually referenced in the Frogs. At the border, he meets the ferryman Charon and helps row his boat over the lake into Hades. It's here that the first chorus appears, a chorus of frogs. So again, we find frogs appearing at a border. And they sing. Kakakak, Coax quacks. These strange words are apparently an onomatopoeia for the croaking of frogs. Do they sound familiar? I've actually said them on this podcast before. Well, more on that in a future episode, perhaps. Although the frogs say that it is Dionysus' Nisos song. It does nothing but annoy the god, and he shouts at them to shut up. And by the way, one proposed etymology for Dionysus is composed of the words Dios, god, and Nisos, a mountain or area that he may have come from. The frogs continue to mock him with their singing, going at a faster pace than he can row until he snatches from them an aulos which is a double flute saying look now i've seized your song from you and continues the song at a deliberately slow pace until finally he drives the frogs away and that's it as far as the frogs go it's the only time they appear in the play it almost seems random But notice that it takes the form of a musical competition, thus foreshadowing what will come at the climax of the play. Some miscellaneous comic scenes follow, having to do with people thinking Dionysus is Heracles. Lots of folks mad at the havoc the hero made last time he was in hell. And finally, we get a long scene of a competition between Aeschylus and Euripides at Pluto's dinner table over who is a greater tragic poet, which Dionysus judges. The winner gets to return to Athens. In the beginning, Dionysus had intended to retrieve Euripides, but in the end, spoiler, he decides to take Aeschylus. In addition to knowledge about the theater and its history, about all kinds of poets living and dead, The Frogs seems to assume that its audience knows all about the mysteries. A mystery cult is one in which believers participate in a secret initiatory rite, where they might receive secret information or undergo a transformative experience. In my first episode on The Fool, I mentioned one mystery cult, The Orphics. Who were associated with the mysteries of Dionysus. But maybe the most prominent was the Eleusinian mysteries, which were devoted to Demeter and Persephone. Like the Dionysus myth, it also deals with death and resurrection. Persephone, the daughter of Zeus and the grain goddess Demeter, is abducted by Hades and taken to the underworld. Her mother wanders the world in search of her, and in her anger and grief at her loss, prevents anything from growing on earth. When Zeus gets sick of the wails and cries from the hungry people, he forces Hades to return Persephone. But before he does, Hades either forces or tricks Persephone into eating some pomegranate seeds. And this, for some reason, obliges her to return each year and spend a third of the year in the underworld. And this is the origin of winter. Obviously, we can see the myth as a representation of the agricultural cycle. Seeds go into the ground, grow, and are harvested and then the ground lies fallow through the winter. In the mysteries it is further allegorized as the death and rebirth of the soul. The central belief, it is thought, of the Eleusinian mysteries was immortality, at least for the initiated. The mysteries were celebrated twice a year. The so-called lesser mysteries in late winter or just before spring and the greater mysteries at the end of summer, or just before harvest season. There was a set of procedures to follow, a pilgrimage to Eleusis that was called the Sacred Way, with pilgrims swinging branches called bakoi, fasting and an all-night vigil, imbibing a special drink called kaikion a mixture of barley and pennyroyal, which some have speculated may have contained ergot fungi. Ergot contains psychedelic alkaloids, very similar to LSD. And in fact, fragments of ergot had been found in a temple dedicated to Demeter and Persephone, both in the remains of a vase and in the teeth of a 25-year-old man. Though this isn't in Greece, but in Spain. Anyway, this all culminated in the initiates entering a great hall called the Telestirion. After reciting, I have fasted, I have drunk the Kaikion, I have taken from the kiste, and after working it, have put it back in the Calathus. The Kisti was a box, and the Calathus was a basket. More than that, I can't tell you. In the center of the Telesterion was a place called the Anactoron which stored sacred objects, and which only high priests could enter. From this point on, there were two rules that initiates had to follow. The first rule was, you don't talk about what happens in the mysteries. And, well, I think you can guess the second rule. It is generally believed that there was a dramatic reenactment of the Demeter and Persephone myth and keep in mind that if the Ergot thesis is correct, initiates would be tripping at this point. It is believed also that secret doctrines were then revealed by the priest. Whatever the case, everything that happened in there was referred to as the aporetta, which means the unrepeatables. The penalty for repeating the unrepeatables was Death. Now, I explain all this even though it's pretty interesting in its own right, because the frogs continually refers to mysteries and initiation. Aeschylus, the father of tragedy and the victor of Aristophanes' rap battle in hell, was reportedly accused of revealing information about the mysteries on stage. Technically the charge was asabia, or impiety. This was the same charge brought against Socrates. Socrates didn't reveal any mysteries, but he was supposed to have been irreverent about the gods. Aeschylus was acquitted. Socrates was not. The first reference to the mysteries in the frogs comes early on, while Heracles is describing to Dionysus the things he may expect to find in Hades. Heracles Next a sweet sound of flutes will come upon your ears, and you'll see a lovely light like the sunlight here above. Myrtles and solemn troops and sweet societies of men and women and an endless clapping of hands. Dionysus. And who are they? Heracles. The blessed. The initiates. Heracles tells him to ask them which way to go from there. That they will tell him everything else he needs to know. This is pretty interesting when we keep in mind that Dionysus' intention is to resurrect someone. Heracles is not giving out all of the information himself, but directing him to find other initiates to lead the way. It's a bit like this is an imitation of the sacred way itself. Heracles had warned Dionysus and Xanthius about encountering monsters in Hades, and when they're frightened by seeing Empusa, the female shapeshifter, which may be a mirage, or perhaps it's just Xanthius messing with Dionysus, he breaks the fourth wall, pointing, as the play notes, at the priest of Dionysus sitting in the front row, and saying, Save me, your reverence. We belong to the same lodge. Is there no help for the widow's son? After this, Ampusa disappears, and the sound of flutes is heard. Xanthius, seemingly in Scooby-Doo mode, remarks, Seems like it's mysteries going on. Now they hear a chanting. Iacos, Iacos! Iacos, Oh Iakos. This appears to be the initiates Heracles had spoken of. During the annual procession to Eleusis, there was a certain spot along the way at which people stopped and shouted "obscenities" in tribute to Balbo. Who was Balbo? Well, this is an odd bit from the Demeter and Persephone myth. Baobo was a dirty old woman, known for cracking racy and obscene jokes. She's often called the goddess of mirth, and she also features in Orphic myth. The story goes that Demeter, while still in mourning and searching for her daughter, is a guest in the house of King Celius in Eleusis. Baobo, a dry nurse there, tries to cheer her up with racy songs and to get her to drink a drink made from barley, much like what the initiates would have drunk. In one version, she does this in tandem with a slave named Iambe. Demeter refuses the drink and the jokes, so then Babo pulls her final trick, lifting up her skirt, showing Demeter her genitals, and or revealing a child named Iakos, who is Demeter's son. The boy takes to his mother's breast, Demeter is cheered up, and she takes her drink at last. The most famous depiction of Baobo is a terracotta figurine of a woman that has three parts, a face, a pair of legs, and a vulva. She's also holding a lyre, somehow. There were a bunch of these figurines in several variations, but all of them displaying female genitalia. The Christian church father, Clement of Alexandria, cited Baobo as an example of the sexual shamelessness of the pagan mysteries. In pagan Rome, however, where the tradition carried on, Cicero praised the mysteries as the best thing which Athens contributed to civilization. Quote, For by their means we have been brought out of our barbarous and savage mode of life. So in very truth, we have learned from them the beginnings of life and have gained power not only to live happily, but to die with better hope." The British novelist and mythographer Robert Graves writes this about the women in this scene. Iambe and Baobo personify the obscene songs in iambic meter, Which were sung to relieve emotional tension at the Eleusinian Mysteries. But Iambe, Demeter, and Baubo form the familiar triad of maiden, nymph, and crone. Old nurses in Greek myth nearly always stand for the goddess as crone. Now, here an interesting question comes up about the relation of myth to ritual. Which caused which? Did initiates drink the Kaikion in honor of this tale about Demeter, or was this tale about Demeter invented to explain why initiates drank the Kaikyon? The initiates themselves would have had the first view, while the latter interpretation was the distinct idea of a group of scholars known as the Cambridge Ritualists, which included Jane Harrison, F.M. Cornford, and Gilbert Murray. It's possible that this minor deity, Iakos originates as a personification of the phrase chanted by the initiates on their way to Eleusis. Iacos has sometimes been identified simply as Dionysus, because the name sounds like Bacchus, the Roman version of Dionysus. This would add an ironic element to the frogs, because then Dionysus would be hiding and spying on a ritual in which his own name was being chanted. The god the worshippers are invoking to come and help them to Eleusis squats nearby hiding from them. When he does approach, he of course is not recognized as such, but they do direct him to Pluto's door, which is nearby. And I won't go through the climactic competition at Pluto's home, but Here's an odd exchange I'd like to point out that takes place between the slave Xanthius and one of Hades' servants named Iakos. Iakos. They're going to have a scale to weigh the music on. Xanthius. What's the idea of that? Short-changing tragedy? Iacos And they'll bring out their rulers and angled rods and T-squares, the kind you fold. Xanthius. Bricklayer's reunion? Iakos. Wedges and calipers. You see, Euripides says you have to wring the gist from the tragedy, word by word. To be clear, there were no Freemasons in ancient Greece, and I'm not asserting anything but coincidence here. But that's kind of all I do anyway. I'd like you to keep this imagery in mind as we move on to the next section. If I had to venture a guess as to what Aristophanes is doing with all the esoteric references, I'd say that he's invoking ideas of resurrection and immortality by referring to the mysteries without breaking any rules about revealing information contained in them, and putting them in service of his broader theme of cultural renewal in a politically dangerous time for Athens. Now, I haven't said much yet about what this political situation is, but for that you're going to have to wait until the second part of the episode. For the moment, I'd like us to leave ancient Athens with the idea that secret societies, rituals, magic, and esoteric knowledge are all part and parcel of the theater always have been. It would take us too far afield, but we could do an analysis like this on the Theatre of England in the time of Shakespeare, under Queen Elizabeth and King James. But we're going to leapfrog over that period, all the way to Hollywood, 1999. There's something special about the films of 1999. First of all, it was just a very good year for movies. Sometimes you get those. But there also seemed to be a thematic thread weaving its way through a whole bunch of different films. The core group is The Matrix, Fight Club, Office Space, and American Beauty. Themes include simulacra, mediation, the emptiness of consumerism and office life, and a crisis in masculine identity. Other films that relate to this American fin de siècle include Being John Malkovich, Existence, 8mm, EdTV, The Blair Witch Project, The Sixth Sense, Election, The Ninth Gate, and Eyes Wide Shut. Regarding the last one, I, I suppose I have to mention that it includes an infamous depiction of a secret society and its occult sexual ritual. And has a kind of initiation and mystery quality to it. It's a popular film among conspiracy theorists, some of whom insist that its director, Stanley Kubrick, who died six days after showing his final cut to Warner Brothers was killed because of what he showed in it, Shades of Aeschylus. Of course, all these films vary widely in genre, quality, and message, but I insist on a family resemblance. Many foreshadow themes which would come to dominate politics sometimes in disturbingly specific details. There are resonances with 9-11 in Fight Club and The Matrix, for instance, The Matrix provided one of this era's most potent metaphors in the red pill and blue pill, while Fight Club predicts the online manosphere. Is it predictive programming, the zeitgeist, or something else? Does it have anything to do with the three number nines in that year? I don't know. But uh, I might have to do an episode on this at some point. And then there's Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia. There's multiple reasons that it fits right in with the rest of the class of 99, but there's also a bunch of things that make it stand out. It's an extremely ambitious movie, great but flawed, a grueling yet rewarding watch. It's also more than a little bit esoteric, in the sense that there are ...meanings hidden beneath the surface elements of plot and character development. The story centers on a Hollywood quiz show that pits gifted children against adults, called What Do Kids Know? It features a large cast of characters, but all of them are related in some way to the production of this show. The character map is thus structured like a flower, with petals radiating out from a center... That's one of several meanings borne by the film's title. There's an introduction that deals with a few stories of odd coincidences in history, and it's a bit of a fake-out. It teases us about the tone of the film, which turns out to be a lot heavier than this somewhat upbeat intro. It also suggests that its theme is chance or coincidence, and although that's not irrelevant, much more prominent are the themes of death, trauma, and forgiveness. It's about the sins of parents against their children. About family secrets. Speaking of secrets, there are three strands of oblique reference throughout the film. You can miss them entirely without impairing your understanding of the plot, but once you notice them, they're hard to ignore. So I won't be dealing all that much with the main storylines of the movie, but I will be spoiling the climax, so if that matters to you, Please stop the podcast here, go watch Magnolia, and I'll see you in a little over three hours. The first strand has to do with a certain secret society. Actually, they say that they are not a secret society, but a society with secrets. For this reason, they are at the center of many a conspiracy theory. Of course, I'm talking about the Freemasons. But lest you think that Masonic conspiracy theory is merely the result of paranoia, I'd suggest looking up the case of William Morgan, a man who was intending to write a book revealing the Masons' secret rituals, who was arrested on trumped-up charges, then released only to never be seen again, I was assumed murdered by the Masons. The incident ignited the anti-Masonic movement in America, which included an anti-Masonic political party. Secondly, I recommend looking up Propaganda Due, aka P2, a Masonic lodge in Italy that provided cover for intelligence networks, corruption, murder, and what was effectively a far-right shadow government during the Cold War. Anyway. In Magnolia, the producer of the quiz show, Bert Ramsey, is clearly wearing a Masonic square and compass ring. Ramsey also gives the quiz show's host, Jimmy Gator, a typical Masonic saying as he places his left hand on Jimmy's right shoulder. We met upon the level, and we're parting on the square. Jimmy has an odd response to this. In my fucking sleep, Burt. Okay, so, what's going on here? The square and compass with the letter G in the center is probably the most recognizable Freemasonic symbol. The film Magnolia itself gives us a hint on how to begin to interpret this, and the first scene in which we see the star quiz kid Stanley in the library doing his research for the show one of the books on the table is Albert Mackey's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry. Mackey says that the square and compass is, quote, the proper badge of a master mason. A square is a carpenter's tool to help ensure that an angle is the proper 90 degrees. According to Mackey, it symbolizes morality and honesty. It's also the origin of the phrase square deal. The compass, he says, symbolizes, quote, the great imperative duty of circumscribing our passions and keeping our desires in due bounds. This will turn out to be a major problem for the elder men in the film, who have all destroyed their relationships with their children because they were unable to do this. Here's an anecdote from Mackey indicating how old the square symbol is. Quote, In the year 1830, the architect... In rebuilding a very ancient bridge called Bale Bridge, near Limerick in Ireland, found under the foundation stone an old brass square, much eaten away, containing on its two surfaces the following inscription, I will strive to live with love and care upon the level by the square, and the date, 1517. The modern speculative Mason will recognize the idea of living on the level and by the square. End quote. So you may think delving into Freemasonic symbolism in an episode supposedly about frogs is a tangent, but I promise you, there will be frogs. In fact, weirdly enough, this exact scenario of finding something hidden in a cornerstone will come up again in relation to frogs. In our second episode. So far we have a moral interpretation of the square and compass, but there's a metaphysical one as well. First the letter G. The most commonly accepted interpretation is the one that Mackey gives. It stands for geometry. This is the most important science for a mason, as indeed it was for some ancient esoteric orders as well. It was said that above Plato's academy, a legend read, let no one ignorant of geometry enter. Often it's claimed that there are other meanings of the letter G, which may be revealed at different stages of initiation, such as generation, gnosis, or God. But these don't come from Masonic sources. If it does indicate God, it is in his capacity as the grand architect of the universe. There's probably more going on here, but I'll leave it at that for now. It is, in fact, geometry that will help us understand the deeper implication of the square and compass. The square allows you to draw a perfect square. The compass allows you to draw a perfect circle. Add an extra dimension, and we have a cube and a sphere. These are the perennial symbols for Earth and Heaven, respectively. Notice that the square is on the bottom, and the compass is on top. In Morals and Dogma, the Freemason Albert Pike wrote, quote, the compass, as the symbol of the heavens, represents the spiritual portion of this double nature of humanity. And the square, as the symbol of the earth, its material, sensual, and baser portion. End quote. Man lives in two worlds, the material and spiritual. Like an amphibian. We can go further and say that the square is time and the compass is eternity. For your body is mortal and your spirit is eternal. Taken as a whole, the square and compass is a symbol of the human or the soul or self. This place where heaven and earth, time and eternity meet. Man is the square and the circle as in Da Vinci's Vitruvian Man. Okay, so now we're ready to look at this exchange between Jimmy Gator and Bert Ramsey. We met on the level and we'll part on the square. This phrase often concludes meetings between Masons. It essentially means fair dealing between equals. It's fraternal. But if the square also symbolizes the base material world, Then the parting referred to in this context is death. We learn that Jimmy Gator is dying of cancer. He hopes to go peacefully in his sleep. The creator of the quiz show, Earl Partridge, is also dying of cancer, one of many doublings in this film. Magnolia bark, by the way, is supposedly an organic cancer treatment. Both of these characters are facing death alone because they have alienated their children. Partridge through neglect, but Jimmy through something worse. We discover that he has sexually abused his daughter. The producer, Burt Ramsey, is played by Ricky Jay, an actor who often plays car dealers, conmen, and magicians. He was also a real-life stage magician, reportedly one of the most gifted sleight-of-hand artists that ever lived. When the Quiz Kid Stanley is studying in the library, one of the many books on the table is one written by Jay, Learned Pigs and Fireproof Women, which is about bizarre stories from the history of entertainment. Jay is also the narrator of the film. What are we supposed to take from this? Is he playing two characters or only one? Is Bert Ramsey the narrator? Is Magnolia implicating itself in this same world of manipulation and exploitation? Now consider for a moment what this is all saying about television and about Hollywood. I don't think the implication is that Hollywood is run by Freemasons, exactly. More that Hollywood is also a society with secrets rather than a secret society. As I mentioned before, Albert Mackey's Encyclopedia of Freemasonry is displayed. Tom Cruise's character in the movie is a pickup artist, which I guess is another sort of magician. And he's named Frank T.J. Mackey. We know he picked this name for himself because his father's name is Earl Partridge. Very quickly, I'll mention a second esoteric strand in the movie having to do with Stanley Kubrick. I mentioned that Eyes Wide Shut came out in the same year. Paul Thomas Anderson visited the set of Eyes Wide Shut and met Kubrick during its production. Tom Cruise was also in that movie. The genius quiz kid in the show is named Stanley. And there's a cool scene in the movie where Earl Partridge is on his deathbed and you see him laying there, old man and that famous theme from 2001 Thus Spake Zarathustra starts playing and it's actually diegetic music from the scene that it cuts to which is Frank T.J. Mackey's talk or performance that he gives, that he's introducing himself with this music. But while you hear that music with Partridge on the bed in the background, it's really reminiscent of Dave Bowman as an old man on the bed at the end of 2001. So I think that has to be a direct reference there. Anyway, on the quiz show itself we see various symbols displayed on the backdrop. These may stand for the categories used on the show, they all relate to some category of knowledge and would be the kind of thing you'd see on such a show, but I can't help but note that behind Jimmy Gator is a compass with a laurel in the place of the square. The laurel has been associated with victory in athletic and artistic competitions going back to ancient Greece. I also note a Masonic connection that the former quiz kid Donnie Smith, who's played by William H. Macy, and in whom we can see the possible future of Stanley if he doesn't break free of his father's manipulative hand. Macy's now working in sales, though of what exactly I have no idea. But he's not doing well, and he gets fired. He then makes the fateful decision to steal from his boss, who is named Solomon Solomon. The origin of Freemasonry is in the construction of the Temple of Solomon. His name is doubled here, and there's a ton of doubling throughout Magnolia, but I'm not quite sure what to make of that yet. The last Masonic connection, or possible connection, is from the very beginning of the film in that introduction I mentioned. Here's the narration. In the New York Herald, November 26, year 1911, there is an account of the hanging of three men. They died for the murder of Sir Edmund William Godfrey, husband, father, pharmacist, and all-around gentleman resident of Greenberry Hill, London. He was murdered by three vagrants whose motive was simple robbery. They were identified as Joseph Green, Stanley Berry, and Daniel Hill. Green, Berry, Hill. And I would like to think this was only a matter of chance. This little anecdote appears to echo the Masonic legend of Hiram Abiff, The chief architect of King Solomon's temple in Masonic lore, who was murdered by three ruffians when he refused to give them the secret passwords of the master mason. This allegorical story is presented to candidates of the third degree of masonry. But the factual story that the anecdote appears to be derived from is even more intriguing. The mysterious death of the English magistrate Edmund Barry Godfrey caused an anti-Catholic backlash in 1678. It's a complicated story but the basics are this. Godfrey belonged to an anti-Catholic group. There was a great deal of paranoia about Catholics at the time, and a man named Titus Oates was spreading a conspiracy theory that Jesuit Catholics were going to assassinate King Charles II and turn the country Catholic. This became known as the Popish Plot. Ironically, though the story was pure fantasy, Charles II was at this time secretly negotiating with France to convert to Catholicism and support France's war against the Dutch in exchange for money. It probably helped that King Louis XIV was Charles' cousin. That deal, now known as the Secret Treaty of Dover, wasn't revealed for a century. If it had been widely known, it would have been a very bad time for Catholics in England. Charles did not turn England Catholic, but he did get it involved in a war against the Dutch, which it lost. Anyway, right in the middle of the Popish plot rumors, Godfrey goes and gets himself murdered. He disappeared and was then found face down in a ditch impaled on his own sword. His body was covered with bruises, and his neck was broken, apparently having been strangled. Also, there had been no bleeding from the sword wound. That's not normal. So, it was concluded that Godfrey had been dead for several days before he was stabbed. Not only was Godfrey fiercely Protestant, but he was the magistrate who first heard Titus Oates's deposition on the Popish plot. London went into an anti-Catholic fervor. There was a chain of accusations and denunciations originating with Oates and ultimately settling on three working-class Catholics, Robert Greene, Henry Berry, and Lawrence Hill. They were quickly tried, convicted, and on February 5th, 1679, hanged on Primrose Hill, which then took on a nickname Derived from the last names of the three hanged men Green, Barry, Hill. Later, the man who had accused them, Miles Prance, pleaded guilty to perjury, and his story is now universally believed by historians to be false. That leaves the story of Edmund Barry Godfrey an unsolved mystery. Now the reason why a rearranged version of this story is in magnolia with the three murderers actually being guilty and the place named greenberry hill being a coincidence well that remains a mystery as well sorry for the digression about this but it's a really interesting story and i couldn't help telling it so paul thomas anderson has embedded a cautionary tale about anti-catholic paranoia in a movie that flirts with anti-Masonic paranoia. Does this make the film covertly pro-Catholic? I don't know, but somehow I doubt it. And now. Frogs. Falling from the sky. A lot of them. A deluge. Splat, splat, splat. That's Magnolia's climax. It comes out of nowhere, a real WTF moment. It's not really a deus ex machina because it doesn't actually solve anything. It's treated more like a miracle, a wonder from the sky. And it's kind of more like a musical climax than a climax of plot. Magnolia has been fairly compared to an opera. It even has a musical number featuring the whole cast. But if you rewatch the movie and look really carefully, you'll catch a lot of foreshadowing. The young kid that raps to Officer Jim makes some reference to it, but he's obviously foreshadowing something even on first watch. There's a lot of other stuff you probably never noticed. In the Smiling Peanut Bar, there's a chalkboard with two teams listed on it, the Frogs, and The Clouds. Both are plays by Aristophanes. The first I've already talked about, of course. The second is his play about Socrates. Aristophanes was not a fan. Now apparently when PTA wrote the screenplay, he did not know about the frog plague mentioned in Exodus 8-2. And when the actor Henry Gibson pointed this out to him, he loaded up the movie with the numbers eight and two. There's some real nerds from IMDB that have clearly put a lot of work into 8.2 spotting, like get real Kabbalistic with it. But I don't wanna write that off, even though some of it seems like a stretch to me, but here are some confirmed instances. An audience member in the What Do Kids Know show has a sign that says Exodus 8.2, which someone from the show takes away from him. there's also a road sign that says that. The first weather forecast is 82% chance of rain. The firefighting airplane from the prologue has an 82 on it. The gambler playing blackjack at the beginning needs a two but gets an eight. The placard on the third hanged convict. Jim Curring's box number of the dating hotline is 82. The forensic science convention starts at 820. Marcy's criminal record number is the number 820 repeated over and over and so on and so on. Here's a real wild fact, which a Google search will confirm. Masonic Columbia Lodge number 82 is located in Magnolia, Arkansas. Another weird thing, not connected to 82, is that Officer Jim and Donnie Smith hide from the frog rain under a Mobil gas station. Mobil's original name was Magnolia Petroleum. Yet another strange coincidence, which I'm willing to say is just a coincidence, but I have to mention it, is that the street kid that raps to Officer Jim, and apparently he was part of a larger subplot that mostly got cut from the movie, his name according to the script is Dixon. So we have a Mason and a Dixon in this movie. Can we take this as a reference to the novel Mason and Dixon by Thomas Pinchon, published just two years prior to the release of Magnolia? Well. P.T. Anderson happens to be the only filmmaker to date to successfully adapt a Pinchon novel, 2014's Inherent Vice. So it's possible. But anyway, back to The Reign of Frogs. Although it's something that made some audiences completely lose patience with this movie, the film itself insists to us that it is not far-fetched. There's a zoom in on a painting with the legend... But it did happen. Stanley, who has broken into the library, watches nearly in glee at the falling frog, saying, this is something that happens. And indeed, it is. But I mentioned before that Anderson did not get the idea from the Bible. So where did it come from? New York City, 1920 A procession of the damned By the damned, I mean the excluded We shall have a procession of the data That science has excluded Battalions of the accursed Captained by that pallid data that I have exhumed Will march You'll read them or they'll march. So began Charles Fort's The Book of the Damned, which hit bookstores in January 1920, though it had been originally published in 1919. Thus it helped inaugurate the Roaring Twenties, you know, jazz, flappers, speakeasies, America home from the Great War in Europe wanting to party and hardly slowed down at all by the national prohibition on alcoholic beverages. So what the hell was this damned book? Well, it was hard to tell. Lots of people picked it up expecting a horror novel or something about prisoners on death row. What they got instead was a nearly 400-page litany of purportedly true facts, pulled from old newspapers and scientific periodicals, the bulk of which concerned eccentric material falling from the sky. Among other things, blood, mud, rain and black snow. Black rain and black snow, yellow substances, both in liquid and powder form. Stones, not meteorites, but stones of a startling variety, some of which seem to be carved or polished. Pieces of flesh or flakes of beef. Gelatinous matter, lung-like tissue, fish, snakes, snails, frogs, an axe that killed a cow and was then buried in the ground, a sword covered in hieroglyphics. For what it's worth, the author acknowledged that the sword was the product of a likely hoax. I think it's fair to say that this is a pretty weird list of happenings, even now, when we've been inundated with a culture of the paranormal, from ancient aliens to DMT machine elves. But in 1920 there was no such culture, or no such mass culture. There had been a craze for seances and spiritualism in the late 19th century, but this was catastrophic, biblical weirdness. Fort even chronicled a number of whirling wheels of light or fire seen by sailors that resembled Ezekiel's vision. But for some reason the frogs have really stuck with people. It's fair to say that Charles Fort was the single most important influence on the emergence of the 20th century culture of the paranormal or the supernatural. His biography, by Jim Steinmeier, is called The Man Who Invented the Supernatural. But as the book acknowledges, Fort himself would certainly have objected to his damned facts being characterized as supernatural. Fort once wrote, I cannot say that truth is stranger than fiction because I have never had acquaintance with either. This quote gives you a little hint of what made Fort's work so different from, say, Ripley's Believe It or Not, a publication originating around the same time which also dealt in bizarre facts. This was not exploitation, zany amusement. Charles Fort had a philosophy and a unique literary style, oblique, sardonic. He often wrote in fragments. He recounted bizarre anecdotes, interspersed with aphorisms dealing with either cosmological speculation or the most sweeping cynicism. He had, in fact, initially been a promising short story writer who had been discovered and encouraged by one of the notable American novelists of the day, Theodore Dreiser. It was Dreiser who demanded that his publisher, Boney and Liverite, Put out the Book of the Damned, against the disapproval of their agents. Their publicist at the time was none other than Edward Bernays, Sigmund Freud's nephew, author of the book Propaganda, and one of the founders of the public relations industry in America. And he couldn't make heads or tails of the Book of the Damned. I do not know to this day, he said, whether Fort took himself seriously or wrote tongue-in-cheek. There was more than a bit of the troll in Charles Fort. But of course, if Bernays had really paid attention to what Fort was saying, he would know that the answer to this question was yes. I'll deal with Fort's philosophy in a moment. First, method. Already when he was trying to write fiction, he developed a method of saving observations and images on note cards, which he would file away in little boxes to be used later. He then adapted this method to research that he undertook at the New York Public Library. He was initially looking for material for his stories, but this soon expanded into an obsessive and completely open-ended research project. Quote, for eight years I studied all of the arts and sciences I had ever heard of. And I invented half a dozen arts and sciences. Then came to me a plan of collecting notes upon all subjects of human research upon all known phenomena, and then to try and find the widest possible diversity of data." End quote. Fort created his own categories for such data. Eventually, he collated 1,300 distinct subjects and 40,000 individual notes. But what increasingly drew his attention were things he was finding that defied classification, things which seemed to have been passed over by the official scientific accounts. Fort's literary mentor and champion, Theodore Dreiser, was blown away by the material he presented, and he helped get Fort published. Dreiser went from considering Fort a promising young story writer to praising him as a guru with something like a new religion to bring to the world. Dreiser's own literary mentor and champion, H.L. Mencken, probably the most influential critic and newspaper man of his day, did not share this opinion, calling him a jitney genius and insinuating Dreiser was being conned. Fort's own opinion may have been something in between the two or maybe both. He sometimes did write things indicating that he was bringing a new perspective on the world, that he was a pioneer whose outlook belonged to the future rather than to the present or the past, but not a religion. Fort professed an equal contempt for religion and for science, but he also wrote things to the effect that none of his theories were to be taken seriously at all, hence the I-believe-nothing quote from the beginning of this episode which is from his penultimate book, Low. He proliferated theories to compete with the scientific ones in order to show that all theories were equally ludicrous. He disliked the term belief, preferring to use the term acceptation, which has a more provisional connotation instead. One could argue that this is, in fact, a more scientific outlook. But the point throughout all of Fort's work is an insistence on the facts he presented. As the poet Wallace Stevens, a contemporary of Fort, wrote, the squirming facts exceed the squamous mind. The line is from a poem called Connoisseur of Chaos, a term that could well describe Charles Fort. It's difficult to overestimate The influence of charles fort on the 20th and 21st century counterculture of the paranormal and occult he was the first to examine what would later be dubbed ufo phenomena along with cattle mutilation spontaneous combustion on and on he coined the term teleportation the term fortian has become an umbrella term for unexplained weird facts Fort Ford eventually published four books of these, The Book of the Damned, New Lands, Low, and Wild Talents. The publication of the last of these in 1932 coincided with Fort's death. Like all his books, it's a miscellany, but predominantly deals with superhuman abilities, such as psychokinesis. These are the titular wild talents, some of which are shamanic, such as the ability to turn into an animal at will. It is this very book which we see among Stanley Spector's research material at the library in Magnolia. In the film, Stanley apparently spends all of his time researching in the library in order to win the quiz show, an open-ended search for facts. That recalls Charles Fort himself. Oh. And by the way, the surname specter is of Dutch origin, as was Charles Fort, and is derived from inspector, with the Indo-European root spect, meaning observe. Not only do we get from this word a whole bunch of words dealing with watching or looking, but we also get the word skeptic, which has long carried the meaning of doubter, but originally simply meant investigator. The semantic transposition is part of the complex legacy of the classic philosophical school known as skepticism, the last vestige of which I would not hesitate to identify with Charles Fort. Stanley's dad is dismayed at the number of books he brings with him to school, even though he's the one pushing him to win even at the cost of his own personal dignity when, in the middle of the show, Stanley wets himself because he's not allowed to go to the bathroom during a commercial break. This causes an emotional breakdown in which Stanley no longer wants to participate in the game, which pits children against adults. The game show, of course, represents the larger battle between generations in the film. Stanley wetting himself is a precipitation in more than one sense, causing his refusal to play the game, to realize he's being exploited by his father, and to demand better treatment. Right after this incident comes the Reign of Frogs. And I'll go ahead and make a speculative interpretation along Fortean lines and insist that Stanley is a wild talent, a mutant, an X-man... His own psychophysical breakdown and breakthrough made it rain frogs. Sirlo's Dictionary of Symbols tells us that the frog appears in many magical rites invoking rainfall. It's as if Stanley's telling his father, Pharaoh, let my people go. This is something that happens. After the quiz show, Stanley runs off and breaks into the library. It might seem strange that he'd go here after having slaved away so long in the same place for his father's benefit, but the goal is completely different. He's researching the lives and fates of other wunderkinder or wild talents like himself in history. This is self-knowledge, as all higher knowledge is. His world picture now includes a picture of himself, the understander of the world, in it. One last fact from Magnolia. Clearly it was from Charles Fort's works that director Paul Thomas Anderson derived the Reign of Frogs. And When Anderson was trying to sell actor Philip Baker Hall on the movie by explaining the significance of the frog rain, Hall told him a story that he hadn't heard before about how he got caught in a bad storm in an Italian mountain range and had to pull over to the side of the road until it was all over. Falling from the sky was a mixture of rain, snow, and tiny frogs. This is something that happens. Charles Fort's writing is anything but systematic, so it's hard to extract a systematic philosophy out of it, but let's try anyway. To start off, his ontology is radically monistic. This means that there is really only one thing, the universe itself. This is really just another way of saying the one is one. The oneness of allness is a favored Fordian phrase. To delineate or demarcate separate entities with independent existences is arbitrary and illusory. That said, understandings of oneness vary, and thus there are monisms rather than simply monism. Philosophy begins as monism. What we now call the pre-Socratic philosophers, but were anciently called physicists, for they were trying to find the essence of nature, or phusis, put forth different candidates for the one substance which underlie all phenomena. Water, air, fire, mind, the infinite. All things derive from or are reducible to one thing. Later, under the influence of Plato, a dualism of being and becoming predominates. But monism survives largely in two forms. Idealism and materialism. Either everything is is mind, or everything is matter, but what mind is, or what matter is, cannot be understood because this would be to define the most basic thing in terms of our understanding of something else, which would of necessity replace it. Now, Fort hardly ever deals with such abstractions. He doesn't tell us what the universe is, only what it has been observed to do. He prefers playful metaphors, as when he says that quote, All things are like a mouse and a bug in the heart of a cheese. Mouse and a bug. No two things could seem more unlike. They're there a week or they stay a month. Both are then only transmutations of cheese. Quote. This is a universe of transmutation. He also liked to say that all things merge away into everything else. But another curious fact about his ontology is that although individual things that are less than the allness of oneness are not in one sense real, they appear to be trying to be. There's a striving after the absolute. Everything wants to be God. Fourth's world is one, but it has positive and negative poles. Or put it this way, heaven is the totality. It alone is what is real. Hell is pure unreality. As such, hell does not in fact exist. In the middle is purgatory, where nothing is either entirely real or entirely unreal. This is a state he calls intermediatism. But in this state, each apparent thing seeks to maintain a semblance of the absolute, that is, to reach up to heaven. In order to become like God, things do what only God can do, which is to damn other things to hell, i.e. thrust them down into the realm of non-existence. The false god is always casting down whatever reveals its limit, denies its independent existence, Or defies its omnipotence. For Charles Fort, the supreme false god in the modern world was science. Here is his portrait of the scientific delusion. Every science is a mutilated octopus. If its tentacles were not clipped to stumps, it would feel its way into disturbing contacts. To a believer, The effect of the contemplation of a science is of being in the presence of the good, the true, and the beautiful. But what he is awed by is mutilation. To our crippled intellects, only the maimed is what we call understandable, because the unclipped ramifies into all other things. According to my aesthetics, what is meant by beautiful is symmetrical deformation. If science is an image of God, then you might think of Fort in the role of Milton's Satan, preferring to rule in hell rather than serve in heaven. And like Aristophanes' Dionysus, when he descends into hell, one of the first things he encounters is frogs. Given the point in history in which Charles Fort's work emerged, Immediately following World War I, I think it's reasonable to put it alongside some of the other artistic and philosophical movements from that era, in particular Dadaism. Dada, infamously, was an artistic movement against art, avoiding representation or meaning. A mood of skepticism toward the idea of progress and the value of civilization that spread throughout the European world in the wake of the Great War. If civilization gave us this, what was the good of it?" Fort's Sojourn Among the Damned Facts also recalls the exploration of the unconscious that you find in psychoanalysis and surrealism. Though as an American he avoids, thankfully, the fashionable ennui that you find in European art and literature, he mostly shares the skepticism about progress. He mocks science just as the Dadaists mocked art. He deals almost exclusively in facts dismissed by science and gives explanations for them that are ridiculous on their surface in order to undermine the very idea of explanation. Another Fordian stock phrase, there is nothing to explain. And if science is a modernist discourse, as it surely in a sense is, then Ford can be considered one of the first postmodernists. This aspect of his work is what distinguishes him so much from the ufologists and cryptozoologists and conspiracy theorists that are undoubtedly his descendants, even ones that are closer to his weird ideas, like John Keel. They tend to reify the folklore of ancient aliens or whatever, and to be eager to have their work ratified by scientific standards. Rarely would you hear them saying things like, there is no such thing as truth or fiction, or there is nothing to explain. Scientists obviously do not take him seriously as a researcher, and he is also unsurprisingly absent from the history of philosophy. I don't think he would even want to be classified as a philosopher. Nevertheless, Fort's critique of science in some ways anticipates ideas that have in fact gained some traction in contemporary philosophy of science. For instance, he does not view the growth of knowledge as something which is linear and cumulative, but rather catastrophic and following waves of fashion. All knowledge at a particular time is governed by what he calls a dominant the dominant is what determines what can count as knowledge. It sorts the facts into the saved and the damned. The dominant serves the authoritarian function of keeping the rabble in line by means of belief. Quote, Almost all people of all eras are hypnotics. Their beliefs are induced beliefs. The proper authorities saw to it that the proper belief should be induced, and the people behaved properly. End quote. There have thus far been two major dominants, religion and science. His work hints at the emergence of a new dominant, which would either be a new form of slavery or else be free of the exclusions that have shaped the past. In all this, I think we're quite a Moses, he wrote. By we, he meant himself. In his autobiography, Many Parts, he is known only by this pronoun. We point out the promised land, but unless we be cured of our intermediatism, we'll never be reported in the monthly notices ourselves. Pharaoh, let my people go. Fort is smiting the borders of the scientific establishment with frogs. This model of the history of ideas recalls the philosopher Thomas Kuhn's idea of a paradigm, which he introduced in his 1962 book The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. A paradigm is a model for how science is to be done, i.e. what counts as legitimate scientific research, most of which is puzzle-solving dictated by the paradigm, rather than the kind of free-thinking critical enterprise of scientific mythos. The period under which a paradigm reigns largely unchallenged is called normal science. What then happens is that anomalies accumulate, i.e. things that cannot be explained by the dominant paradigm. The goal in normal science is to resolve them according to the paradigm, or dismiss them as the product of bad science. If enough anomalies accumulate, a period of revolutionary science begins, in which we may see the emergence of competing paradigms and a resultant paradigm shift. Okay, so far so good. Nobody who knows the history of science would say there hasn't been major paradigm shifts. Newtonian physics, Darwin's theory of natural selection, quantum physics, all obvious examples. The real kicker here is Kuhn's insistence on the incommensurability of paradigms. This means that a paradigm cannot merely revise or modify an older paradigm. It must replace it wholesale. Every known fact is reevaluated and recontextualized according to the new paradigm. It's a lot like regime change or the denazification of Germany by the Allies after World War II. Some facts have to be declared war criminals and killed, some just in prison, some can even keep their jobs as long as they prove themselves loyal to the new regime. So I don't want to go too deeply into the philosophy of science for many reasons, Um, but I just want to point out how much this sounds like Fort's model of history, which changes only in catastrophe and is structured by dominant ideas. Fort's notion also bears a passing resemblance to Foucault's notion of the episteme in the history of thought. These ideas are still debated in the Academy while Charles Fort lingers on the discount rack in used bookstores with the Pulp Fiction. And that is actually quite alright. That's where Philip K. Dick was before Hollywood and academia adopted him. Always a mixed blessing at best. So when it comes to dealing with the facts as they relate to science, we have a three-pronged fork. Either they did not happen or they can be explained within the dominant paradigm, or the dominant paradigm needs to change. Fort unequivocally endorses the latter, with the stipulation that it be a dominant that is not a dominant. Now I can imagine a critic making a couple of points here. Number one, this confuses science, which is both a method for producing knowledge and a systematic body of knowledge produced by that method, With the institutions of science, which of course are fallible. If the dominant is a theory which has stood the test of time, there's nothing wrong with having it be the standard by which we measure any given fact. To reject this would mean to reject the possibility of knowledge per se. Number two, the scientific method is actually anti-authoritarian since it obeys an objective and universally accessible process for attaining truth which is open to verification and critique by anybody, rather than investing authority in a particular set of people or institutions who are deemed to have special access to truth through private revelation. My answer to both of these points would be, in principle, maybe. In practice, sorry, but no. Moreover, the scientific worldview rests on assumptions that themselves are not demonstrated through scientific means. For example, the principle of causal closure, which states that physical events must have only physical causes. It's an axiom of materialist metaphysics and is not subject to empirical falsification. Another presumption is that everything in nature repeats itself and thus can be confirmed by experiment. Carl Jung deals with this in the opening pages of his book Synchronicity, which tries to establish a kind of science of the a-causal. Quote, the experimental method of inquiry aims at establishing regular events which can be repeated. Consequently, unique or rare events are ruled out of account. Moreover, the experiment imposes limiting conditions on nature. For its aim is to force her to give answers to questions devised by man. Every answer of nature is therefore more or less influenced by the kind of questions asked, and the result is always a hybrid product." Hybrids. The result, we might say, is amphibious. The idea of synchronicity, which Explores a causal connections, syncs up with Magnolia's theme of chance, of things that happen, a double edged phrase. It's just one of those things. This too is a thing that happens. Let's go back for a moment to the reigns of strange objects from the Book of the Damned. How has science dealt with such material? The most common way is to dismiss eyewitness accounts of them falling and claim that the objects were already on the ground. Ford has an interesting reply to this, noting that when you visit museums that display objects that are labeled as meteorites and then look into how these objects were found, almost none of them were actually seen to have fallen from the sky. The criteria apparently is not whether objects were seen to fall, but whether they fit the preordained idea of what a meteorite is. That is, what is to be excluded, and what included. This approach is a little more difficult in the case of the frogs, fish, and other animals which have been observed throughout history. Pliny the Elder, the Roman naturalist, noted storms of frogs and fish in the first century. French soldiers saw toads fall from the sky near La In Honduras, there is a tradition called the Lluvia de Pesce, which is said to be an annual summer fish rain. So this is a known occurrence. The most commonly accepted theory is that they are picked up by water spouts basically tornadoes over a body of water, and then transported elsewhere and dropped. Here's a BBC News article from August 20th, 2004, called How Can It Rain Fish? Quote, On Wednesday, the village of Knighton in Powys was reported to have endured such a fishy deluge. Not a story easily believed. An odd sight for a biblical-style plague, one might think perhaps to be followed by the waters of the nearby River Tem, running red with blood? Some believe that these events may give a clue to the origin of the plague of frogs recorded in the book of Exodus. Two U.S. scientists have come up with an explanation of the ten plagues of Egypt as a series of linked natural disasters, each following as a result of the other. End quote. What's interesting about this article is that it reports on an actual recent event, gives a generic description of how such a thing could have happened, and gives a diagram, but gives no account of how it did happen. This is what you get when a scientific explanation takes hold. There is as yet no single recorded observation of fish or frogs being carried up in the air by waterspouts. One would think that if a theoretical explanation has been proposed for an event that has not been witnessed or recorded one time, then deploying this explanation for a current event is both bad science and bad journalism. The waterspout theory isn't even a scientific theory, it's a completely untested hypothesis. And this is why you don't simply trust the science. For a good critique of the waterspout theory, I recommend checking out the Skeptoid Podcast, episode 170. The funny thing is that this is the contemporary brand of skepticism, meaning it's devoted to debunking paranormal or occult claims. But it notes that in a full-blown supercell tornadic waterspout, quote, water itself is not sucked up inside. The visible column of a waterspout is made up of condensation and is transparent. The high winds will kick up a lot of spray from wavelets on the surface, but if you look at pictures of waterspouts, you'll see that this spray is thrown outward, not sucked up inward. Just below the surface of the water, things are undisturbed. Waterspouts simply do not have any mechanism by which they might reach down into the water, collect objects, and then transport them upward into the sky. End quote. So, a waterspout of this kind is essentially the same as a tornado. Do you ever see rains of debris in a storm that happens after a tornado hits town? No, you don't. It's actually fairly implausible that a waterspout could pick up a group of related objects. Remember, we tend to hear reports of a single species of animal fall, not a variety. Then carry them up into the clouds and transport them laterally across a great distance and then dump them in a single location. But we don't expect Skeptoid to leave us with the fantastical, so he goes with the tried-and-true, already-on-the-ground theory. Reports of frog rains are actually just frog swarms coinciding with storms. In the spring and fall, an entire frog population will migrate, and this migration, a frog exodus, if you will, works best for amphibians during rainstorms. Quote When you look outside during a heavy rainstorm, and you see thousands of frogs jumping everywhere, all over the ground, the illusion that they're falling from the sky and bouncing can be quite convincing. A swarm of frogs look like ping-pong balls bouncing in a lottery machine. The fact that there usually aren't frogs here adds credibility to the illusion. Throw in a healthy dose of confirmation bias and some exaggerated second, third, and fourth-hand reports and you automatically end up with every imaginable detail, like the frogs were choking rain gutters on top of buildings, end quote. Seems plausible enough to me, if we were just talking about a few incidents. But I think it's less likely that so many people in history, from Pliny the Elder to Philip Baker Hall, would be so deceived. Before we leave the weird world of Charles Fort, I'd like to comment, of course, on his work as symbolism frog, which has become something of an icon of his, we are told by Sirlo represents quote, the transition from the element of earth to that of water, and vice versa. As an amphibian, the frog exists in two worlds and is thus a boundary crosser, and we will be unsurprised to find it at borders of all kinds. Frogs falling from the sky adds the element of air to earth and water. I'd also like to consider Fort's writings on things fallen from the sky in general under the sign of the aerolite or meteor shower. Sir Lowe, again, says that it symbolizes, quote, "...spiritual life which has descended upon the earth, that it is revelation, or the other world made accessible, a seed of the heavenly fire in its creative aspect." And finally, a sign of the cosmic marriage of heaven and earth. My acceptation is that the universe contains a system of compensations and balances. Whenever there is a movement to one extreme, there is a secret counter movement that is building in the other direction, slowly but surely heaping up its anomalies until one day it plagues the borders. Rationalism and Dada, Scientific Disenchantment and the Miraculous, Order and Chaos, Progress and Decay, Apollo and Dionysus. And I'd also just like to say that Charles Ford is worth reading, even if his facts are pure bunkum. But we're not done with our little froggy friends, not by a long shot. A sequel's on the way, and it's gonna get even weirder. Stay tuned. <laughs>